Welcome to Life List, a birding podcast. Hello, welcome everybody. This is Life List, a birding podcast. I am George Armistead here with my co-host Alvaro Jaramillo. Hello. And we also have a special guest today, Trish Miller, who is in, comes to us from Cape May. Uh, she is probably, I think it's fair to say, the, if not the major world authority on golden eagles, certainly uh, among uh, a uh, an elite group there, um, and has done a lot of work tracking birds with CTT and Conservation Science Global. She's down in Cape May today on a nice summer day. Trish, how are you doing today? Doing great. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me to talk with you today. Yes, excited about it. Excited. About Welcome. This is this is this has been one I've been looking forward to. I think like we even were in touch like a year ago or so about doing this, and then you know schedules finally aligned, and and here we are. I was saying, Al, just Trish and I were talking just before we started recording. I think when I was president of the DVOC Delaware Valley Ornithological Club, she came to talk at on Golden Eagles here in Philly, and I missed the talk. I think I even I might have arranged the talk. I can't remember. But I, I think <laughs> wow. at the very least I requested it, but then I ended up being away, and I was like, "Darn, man! Like this is a a story I've been wanting to kind of hear for a while." Um, the uh, the golden eagle and where it has led you, Trish, and how uh, how it led to CTT. Um, maybe we should start with some broad brush strokes here. And um, you want to just tell folks a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm Trish Miller. I am the uh, executive director and I'm a senior wildlife biologist with Conservation Science Global. We're a nonprofit uh, that seeks to uh, do, we do research on natural resources to help inform management of those resources and um, also to inform education. Uh, I've been studying golden eagles since 2005 uh, when I was my partner, my husband then, Mike Lanzone, and I were living in Pennsylvania. And the great state, Pennsylvania. Yeah, the great state of Pennsylvania, where so many golden eagles migrate through on those ridges. It's a fabulous place. Um, so back in 2005, and actually a little in, even before that, we started. I saw my first golden eagle on Tussie Mountain back in 2000. Um, and Tussie Mountain is a migration, spring migration hotspot in Pennsylvania. Right near State College, yeah. Yep. And I'm a Midwest girl, and we had moved here, moved to Pennsylvania in 2000. That's why I saw my first one. But it wasn't until 2005 that we actually got the opportunity to study them. And uh, one of our research partners, uh, Todd Kastner, he started working at the National Aviary. Mike and I were working at um, Powder Mill Nature Reserve, uh, which is Carnegie Museum of Natural History uh, Biological Field Station. And Todd came out and we were talking about collaborating on a project and uh, Golden Eagles came up. And funny thing is Todd didn't even really realize that there was so many Golden Eagles that moved through, but he was really excited about it. And so the three of us together... Uh, we also knew that wind energy development was coming on strong in the ridges and the, the exact place that so many birds, not just golden eagles, but concentrate their movements during migration. And so there's a potential conservation problem there as we knew from other places like out west in California and even in Europe that uh, eagles in particular were at risk of collision with wind turbines. So that's how how the project started. Nice. <laughs> You've spent some uh, some probably pretty brisk days up there on Tussie Mountain, I imagine. It, the uh, I understand if the conditions are right, you can get a couple dozen golden eagles passing uh, in a day. 
Uh, I know they've had 20 or 30 sometimes at least. Up, up to, I think, over 60. Oh, wow. Um, I don't know what the re- daily record is. Uh, we'd be in during fall migration. I believe it's over 70, and that may be at the Allegheny Front. I don't know. There's always these battles between uh, <laughs> between hawk watches as to who gets the most each year and who has the highest record um, of in, yeah, in, in individuals in a day. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty amazing. And, yeah. 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 Now with these golden Eagles, do you think, um, you, you guys went up there and started realizing that these are, uh, really moving through in fact, and I'm, I'll be birding next month with, uh, Nick Bulgiano, who, who spends a lot of time up there on Tussie. Right. And, uh, do you think, Golden Eagles have increased in the East or simply the detection has increased both? I guess that's up for debate. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's really, there's there never been any uh, really substantial uh, population that level studies, like the demography studies on Eastern, the Eastern population. Um, when we started the project, we were estimating, you know, one to 2,000 individuals. Uh, then one of Todd's students did um, some research using hot watches and uh, estimated somewhere around maybe 5,000 individuals. Uh, what's been seen at hot watches, whether those, you know, numbers went up because people started recognizing um, or being able to differentiate between bald and golden eagles, those kinds of things. Uh, it's up for debate. If you look at the raptor population index, I think it suggests that based on that, that the populations have increased. But, at, I mean, what we think is they're probably stable, but don't really know. <laughs> it's a tough one. Yeah. 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 Well, I, you know, we... When I was going to school in Toronto, it was weird. Uh, if you had the right situation, and golden eagles were supposed to be pretty rare, you and ca- on campus you could look up and wait, and you would see golden eagles flying over, and people say, "What? You know, you're not supposed to be here. They're super rare." But I think <laughs> there was an element of people weren't quite looking, especially in the specific situation. There was really brisk, cold after the front. Um, puffy little clouds it was really almost like they were the only thing moving with a few sharpies or something it was sort of odd you know and it wasn't like most people weren't hawk watching at that point because it was late too in the season so yeah. i wonder well, if that's what part of it too people weren't really looking in the right places or in the right times yeah i mean you know historically hawk watches i think a lot of them ended by november and you still get a significant movement of golden eagles um into December, even through December, we've had telemetry birds uh, not arriving on their wintering grounds until January or even later in January. And so, you know, some these movements tend to be oh, later than the bulk of the other uh, hawk migrations. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 I, I, I feel like there is also a little bit of an uptick. And again, I don't know if this is detection and people just sort of figuring out how to look or where to look and when to look um, in kind of quote out of season reports of goldens as well. Um, I've seen reports in like August, you know, um, and I've like, we had one here in Philly uh, local birder named Ed edge photographed one. I think it was like in the first week of May or something going you know yeah and i was just like the what you know historically as like it's sort of like i was saying somebody say you had a golden eagle at all was a good bird but like if you did it was going to be november december maybe like march you know and kind of almost anything outside of that was like forget it you misidentified it you're wrong you know <laughs> and and now it's just like it's i think I, I don't know what's going on but they're being documented a, a lot more so, so one thing that the telemetry data has shown is that these juvenile birds, well, can stay into May 
like mid-May. I think our latest departure was May 11th from the Appalachian. And so seeing a bird in May, in my mind, isn't out, wouldn't be out of the norm. If, if it's an adult, it would be, <laughs> or even a sub-adult, but a juvenile, I can totally see. Yeah. 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 So that doesn't, those, those don't surprise me. August is a, a harder one because, uh, um, because the, if, if it's a, it should be the younger birds early, although there is a lot of overlap, uh, more overlap in timing between juvenile subs and adults in the fall. And they're more staggering in the spring. Um, but but August is would be a a red flag, and but there are explanations for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. So so first of all, I got to go back because we talked about whether or not the populations are increasing, decreasing, stable. One one place in the uh, where they have decreased and actually been extirpated is that they they were occupying nest sites in Maine until. Uh, 1999 and since 1999 there have been none and there have been no chicks produced in the northeast since uh, 1984 at least Uh, so that population has been extirpated but what's going on in Canada is is more of a mystery so let me go back is that at one time in the past people thought that golden eagles had previously bred Further south, and the the most um, further south in the northeast, the most um, uh, reliable and accepted southernmost um, nest is on the Susquehanna outside of Harrisburg, but nothing further south than that um, that anybody considers the reliable documentation. Uh, and but in the eighties. Uh, they started introducing golden eagles into Georgia, uh, North Carolina, and uh, kind of in that in that general area, also in Tennessee. And uh, those introduction, introduction, yeah. So wow. they released somewhere two hundred birds. I think they they even released some above up on Bald Eagle Mountain in Pennsylvania, just outside of. State College. So were goldens, well. were goldens historically known from those areas? No, the only, the furthest south yeah. nesting was Susquehanna. So what what ended up happening is you have these 200 plus birds, even in, in uh, Tennessee, they, the last introduction was in 2006. Uh, they ended up having some some birds establish territories, and these are all birds that were brought from out west to the east and uh, released. And then uh, at least two pairs established nest sites: one in Tennessee and one in Georgia. And the one in Tennessee, uh, and we don't know same pair or somebody else came in, but as late as two thousand. Well, there was a documented um, a chick that ended up with it starved. <laughs> it was found. It was uh, being uh, almost dead, and then they brought it into rehab and ended up dying because of starvation. Mm. And then there was one picked up in Virginia, a juvenile, um, in 2000. 15, I think it was, and that one was rehabbed and released, unfortunately, and we put a telemetry unit on it, and tracking it, trying to see what happened, and it ended up disappearing, and so it probably died as well, but um, that bird was found in August. Uh, any birds that are fledging up in Quebec are fledging in mid-July, and very unlikely to make it down to Virginia by uh, early to mid-August. I can't remember what day it was found. Um, and we also looked at feather isotopes. And so uh, on that bird, you can look at the feathers and you can compare it to hydrogen isotopes. There's just different 
uh, I'm not an expert in isotopes. All I know is you can you can basically identify a general area where a feather was grown. Right. And so we have we over the years we've taken feathers from birds we've captured on the wintering grounds and we've captured even taken ones that were samples of ones that were growing in at the time. And so we could tell that that feather closely matched feathers that were grown on the wintering grounds, but we can't rule out that it didn't come from, say, the Gaspé Peninsula, the furthest south nesting area in Quebec right now. Um, anyway, so these sightings that people might have, if they have photographic evidence, the juvenile, I mean, we, we don't have any other evidence of that any more breeding has occurred since, say, 2015 when that bird came, showed up in Virginia. Hmm. Um, but there's always a... a rare possibility that something's still going on and you know there are a lot of remote places that <laughs> sure. we just can't we can't get to we, we don't see and these birds are tend to be rather cryptic because of the uh, habitats they occupy right so. like they they i think what some of what your work has shown right is that they actually inhabit woodlands a good bit more than people realize at times and of course when they're flying they can be very very high um, I think personally, as someone who's been birding, you know, my entire life in the East Coast, I think I've only ever seen like one perched golden eagle in the East. You know, it's like I, I remember it well because I looked at it and thought, oh, it's an eagle. And then I was like, wait a minute, that's not a bald eagle. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's really yeah, there, habits don't lose themselves, right? To, to, to take a lot of time. Well, what we say is that you can see them really well during migration, but once once they're on the wintering grounds, if they're not up and flying around, they're really hard to pick out and see because they're they're in places that people tend not to be. And if they you have a brown bird that's perched in a brown tree, um, then good luck picking it out. <laughs> it's not easy. Yeah. yeah, we call them the ghosts of the eastern forest. It's, it's amazing what they do and what we've seen. You know, when we have birds that come into our trap site. You know, you would think they would come from the open area or down a road. No, I mean, we've seen them come straight out of the woods. When we release them, they go straight into the woods and they, they'll, they'll fly like an occipiter, like twisting and turning and, and just, just things that people just don't think golden eagles do. You mm-hmm. know? Um, are, are you think, do you think they, well, with the isotope data, do you know if they are eating? sort of what level on the food chain essentially are they um uh you know are they eating small mammals versus larger mammals given that your description of being in the in the woodlands i'm thinking boy they might be eating like cottontails and and squirrels rather than you know small deer or something no, well, <laughs> well, well there's, there's lots of evidence that they eat turkeys okay turkey. <laughs> are you like uh, you could look up uh, on the on the internet and say golden eagle wild turkey and there's some videos at least one video from tennessee where uh they had a camera trap up at a a place they were baiting for turkeys to catch them for research purposes and a young golden eagle came in and had chased the turkey and we've had a bird that we caught in in um, alabama and we've been tracking her since 2015 uh, she's still sending data but she comes back to the place. Uh, we've actually caught her twice too. Uh, she's come back to that same trap site uh, and roost nearby, and we've been able to go down by the roost tree and we recovered a pellet, and it had turkey toes in it. Uh, so we Yum. know she doesn't just feed on the deer that we provide, but she also goes out hunting. We can see that in her telemetry. I hope she eats more than the toes. Man. Yeah. Is that <laughs> Those where they just come, come out. <laughs> yeah, it's probably why they arrive at Thanksgiving, right? So uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's right. a good call. <laughs> strong. I know, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, good yeah. correlation yeah. there. They, they hit Canadian yeah. Thanksgiving first in October, then they hit you know, to American <laughs> that's right. in November. Yeah. But they do have a, they have a, I mean, they have a pretty diverse diverse uh, diet you know but mostly feeding on terrestrial um, animals even I mean, we've even seen in west virginia we had a trap mouth 
problem with a trap. And while Mike uh, and Todd were fixing the trap, I was watching this young golden eagle in a field and it was mousing. You could see it walking around and, and like searching for voles and things like that, oh, wow. which was really, really fun to watch. Um, but uh, they probably more often take larger, medium-sized animals and large animals. Like, I mean, right, right. Evidence. they can kill deer. Um, and obviously, they can kill turkeys. And, um, they also feed on carrion. You know, they're opportunistic. And the ones out west are pretty, like, they really take some larger game at times, is my understanding, right? They've been, they'll knock mountain goats off cliffs and stuff like that, like small, I don't know about adults, but. Um, yeah. Yeah. I know that uh, my uh, friend Carol McIntyre studies goldens in uh, Denali. She she's mentioned that you know certain nests have will have parts of of uh, young mountain goats in in the nest, and it probably depends on the position of the nest compared to to where the goats are. You know, it's wild. Yeah. Um, it's kind of circling back to the beginning here. How? Um, Tell us a little bit about how Golden Eagles became, um, you know, your your focus and how that led to the formation of cellular tracking technologies and maybe in, sketch out for folks what CTT, cellular track, tracking technologies, is all about. Okay. So, well, I said we started this project in 2005. Back in 2005, that um, uh, we, we decided that in order to determine how golden eagles were flying and how they would, and the potential interaction with wind turbines, we needed to get GPS data. And at that time, the GPS units you could get were, uh, we call them satellite telemetry units. So it has a GPS in it and it communicates over the Argo satellite system. So it collects data, sends it up to the satellite and the the data are sent back down to a uh, server on, um, in France. And so we bought three of those units and we put them out on Golden Eagles in, starting in November of 2006. And when we looked at the spring migration data that we were getting, the best track we had, so we need to have flight data. So the GPS gives you information about how high they're flying, you know, where they are, how fast they're flying, and the direction they're going. And so we had a track of like something like 17 points across Pennsylvania. And we're like, well, that's not going to tell us much. <laughs> we're going to have to tag so many birds to get the information we need to answer this question. And so Mike Lanzone was uh, is my husband. Um, he, he started contacting the telemetry companies and they're like, no, we can't give you more than 12 points a day at that time. Uh, and then he's like, well, can you give it to us in a burst so that we get them all in a short period? No, we can only get, get them once an hour or less frequently than that. So that was no. So he's like, well, I have this idea that we can use GPS and send the data over the cell phone network. And then because you're not going up to a satellite and back to Earth, but just through the cell phone network, you can collect a lot more data a lot more frequently. And and he's like, can, can you work with me to develop a unit that can do that? And they're like, no. And <laughs> a lot of so, uh, no, it was like, no, no, no. And no, no, no. Yeah. no. Yes. And some of them were not particularly nice about how they did them. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was hung up quite on by somebody. Um, so uh, anybody who knows Mike knows that uh, if he has a challenge, it's something he needs. Like and, a bulldog, right? Yeah. Right. Like there, he, no isn't the answer he takes. And so he said, well, I guess I'll just have to do it myself. Uh, and so he, you know, for years, 
uh, this is 2005, if you remember, we had flip phones and there were no iPhones and things like that. Or he got 2006, all this started. Um, he, like my family and everybody knew would give him old cell phones. And so he had this drawer at his bioacoustic lab of, of cell phones and, and he put all these things together. Uh, well, he said, he said, he said, I'm going to do it myself. And I'm like, okay, well, my, both Todd and I are like, all right, well, we'll see that when that happens. And it was <laughs> like in a few days, he comes back and he says, I did it. I put it together. I'm like, can you put it on a bird? Well, not quite. Because if you think about it, you have to have something small. So uh, when we put a telemetry unit on a bird, it has to be less than 3% of their body weight. And you have a, a uh, you know, so you're looking at something generally under or less than a hundred grams. And so that, that wasn't going to happen, but it honestly did not take him that long. Um, he found a guy, Casey Halverson out in Seattle, who, who agreed to help, uh, help him with the, the coding for this thing. And, um, and then within, within a year, we had prototype units to, to put out on birds and that was that was the beginning of, of ctt which is now much more than making we call those those cell phone gps units we call them gsm units uh and they now they now have everything from uh they can track everything from elephant seals um down to well I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, monarch butterflies. Um, so they, and they have many, many other technologies, not just GSM, but they have radio technologies uh, as well. Um, units that you can put on small birds that, that don't take a battery. Um, it's, it's been amazing what, uh, what they've done and what they've developed over the last uh, 15 years or so. And, um, and how the company has grown. We, he moved the company. Well, we moved to Cape May in 2015. And with that, the company came to Cape May. And also the company grew considerably from that time point on. Yeah. Like I, I think the first time I met Mike, we were at in Colorado Bird Observatory. Maybe I think it's now Rocky Mountain Bird Observatory. And we were like doing point counts in like the early mid nineties or something. And it was, it was quite a cadre of us. It was like, you know, it was me and Mike and Brian Gibbons and Chris Wood was out there. Um, quite, quite a bunch of people. Um, and, um, and, you know, and I'm like, I, I didn't see Mike for quite a while after that, but I always kind of kept tabs. And all of a sudden when CTT just, it seemed like, it just like blew up a little bit, blew up more, blew up and just cut like grew and grew and grew. And now you guys have a big office there in Cape May. Um, I don't, I don't know how many employees you have and, or, or like how many I species you've tracked, but. Uh, I don't know. He has like over 40 employees and the building they're in also has bird safe glass on the front, That's awesome. which he insisted when, when they were building it, he said that he insisted they put in bird safe glass because the whole front of the, all those buildings are are all glass. So That's good too. I had to point that out because no, nobody points that out. <laughs> yeah. point that out. Also, like I understand, yeah. Cape May is a pretty good place for bird migration. So, uh, uh, is yeah, it, <laughs> it's important a place to have that as any. That's very cool. Yeah. When when one of these birds had had one of these units, did how did it kind of work? Was it like almost like it had its own cell number and it would be calling back to the to the to the tower and, and drop in the da data or was it something completely different? Like if you had to just well, simplify it for regular humans. <laughs> well, it, it, you know, the first prototype units actually did have a phone number associated uh -huh. with them. Now the units have, well, and then subsequent ones had actual SIM cards in them mm -hmm. and uh, they could change out the SIM card if, if they got a unit back or something like that, if they needed to. And, and now they have, I guess, an electronic SIM card in them. But basically, the unit has a little cell phone modem in there. It has a GPS unit and an accelerometer, which measures movement on several axes. 
and um, and then it has a battery and a solar panel. And so you can program those units any way you want. And what I didn't say is that once we started using those units, we were getting a point every 30 seconds versus a point every hour. So we could actually see, you know, where the birds were moving, how they were responding to topography, how they were responding to weather. And we could also see where they were going, um, which, you know, you could always see where they were going with the satellite units, but you couldn't see all those other things. Um, so anyway, so they, the data, the unit will collect all these GPS data and accelerometer data and it stores it on board. And then our units are programmed to try to connect to the cell phone network once a day. And if it doesn't connect, it just stores the data on the unit and then it, when it's able to reconnect, it'll send all those data over, over the, cell phone network to server at CCT. And then me as a researcher, we have a server, a SQL server that goes in each night and downloads any data that we're collected and sent from any of our units. And um, so over the past, uh, whatever it's eight, 17, 16 years, 17 years, <laughs> and um, we've, tagged over a hundred golden eagles, our, us and our partners have tagged over a hundred golden eagles in the eastern part of does that get to the question about how they work? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now of those of those golden eagles, like are there any that you have a particular fondness or fascination of? Um, I'm sure all of them feel like uh, you know, your children in a way. But uh... yeah, I mean, you have we do have certain connections like the one I, I told you about um, that we she had to turkey toes in her one of her pellets. Um, she her, we call her Natchez. We will give the birds a, a name that's associated with the place that they were captured. Now, in the old days, when we only had a few birds, we had numbers and. Um, we still have numbers, but it's hard for me mentally to associate a number with a bird anymore because we have so many um, that we've been tracking. So Natchez is, is one I'm very fond of. She uh, is one of the first birds that we tagged. Uh, she was captured in northwest Alabama at the Freedom Hills uh, Wildlife Management Area. And she migrates up through Wisconsin, through the UP, and goes up to the eastern side of the uh, Hudson Bay oh, wow. each year. And she's been doing that. And from her data, I can sometimes tell if she's nested or not nested. Um, but she goes up to the same, same winter range or same breeding range every year and comes back down to the same wintering range. Um, we caught her when we caught her the first time we were trying to catch a pair so she was hanging out with an, a male and um she was feeding on the carcass and so we wanted to catch both of them at the same time and put telemetry in and on them to just to find out if they're just hanging out in the winter time or if they're actually a breeding pair that's wintering together and when we fired the net she uh, the male came in the male had come in and had landed and she jumped off the carcass and he was just behind the carcass and fired the net and she jumped up high and held the net up with her wings so that he could scoot out underneath wow but what he <laughs> yeah it was devastating but <laughs> but cool because when he he flew out, he landed on the edge of the field, which is a small field, and he sat there and he watched us get her out of the net. And then we took her away and we processed her and we put her telemetry unit on, and then we let her go. And you know when they were when he was feeding and whatever they they were kind of like 
talking to one another, vocalizing to one another. So this, um, I'm sorry, this what, is on the wintering. This is in a winter territory in, in the pit. In winter, in their, wintering they're, ground. They're a functional pair. On well, they were they were communicating. They were sitting next to another. We see this a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but when we let when we let her go, he was still nearby, and they started calling back and forth to one another. And um, so we never were able to catch him. But one thing that did happen is so we've documented this, or you know, we've seen this behavior over and over. We have a male and female pair that are using the same carcass, feeding together, sitting together, um, doing things that seem like it's a pair bond. In 2018, it was 2018. We went to Kentucky and we caught uh, a male at a Bernheim Research Forest, an arboretum, and um, we came came back the next year, and we had the same behavior. This male was hanging out with a female. We were able to catch that female, but we still didn't know. You know, are they? you know, a wintering pair or do they leave? So the and in March they both left at the same time. But he went past Duluth and she went straight north through the Straits of Mackinac Strait. And then she started to turn left, but there's no cell phone coverage up there and we knew where he was going he was going just south of Churchill to Wapusk National Park and um, so we had to wait until they came back south before because they collect all those data in the summertime and then we don't so we don't see them unless they connect to the cell network and which they don't tend to do up there <laughs> and when they came back south it turned out that they were a, a breeding pair that wintered together. Wow. And they don't take the same migration route. Wow. That is wild. I would never, <laughs> that never knew that. that is... No. So that's an N of one, right? We don't yeah. know. Is yeah. that what these, all these pairs that are acting like pairs, are they really breeding pairs? Right. It's Maybe. one of those things. I guess if it happens once, it's probably happened more than once, but probably I would imagine there's quite a few instances where that's not the case. Is that? Yeah. Or? So, I mean, we, we continue to try to, to capture pairs, but it is exceedingly difficult. They're smart. Yeah. 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 So they tend to be more wary, you know, after you've caught them once, although some of them, you know, they, they like that reliable food source and they'll come back year after year. Um, you, do you use okay. cannon nets or um, like so, BC type? Like if we used if we used a cannon net, we would have caught them both because the nets are huge. Like okay. we used to when we started out, we we when we started out, we started trapping during migration using bow nets. Um, but now we trap on the wintering grounds. We have deer carcasses and cameras, and then we have. Uh, we started out using a giant air cannon, uh, but it's really difficult to move around. We like need a trailer. It's huge. It's not very inconspicuous, <laughs> but it has a huge net. Um, and then we started using, and I think in 2009, we started using a net launcher, which is a small compact net that um, shoots out, that we can shoot out remotely. Um, but that's a, it's a 20 by 20 net and it's, even when it's when it's shot out, it doesn't ever make that full spread, so it's really difficult to catch two birds at once. Mm -hmm. So we did have to try. <laughs> so, if you let's imagine that there's a whole bunch of these uh, nesting pairs that winter together, what do you think the the way it happens is? Do you think that they meet up like as immatures up north, and they go, "Look, this is a great place. We should hang out together," and they migrate once together and then they kind of take their own route or do they meet in the winter and the male says i'll follow you up but the fact that they don't migrate together sort of is really problematic to <laughs> figuring out how they how they go from one place to the other they have to do it at least once together you, you would you would think yeah, yeah. i mean from what we know about 
golden eagle biology, you know, an individual will look for, you know, an open, open nest, uh, nesting territory. You know, these, these breeding territories can, are, can be very old. Like the one that was the oldest known one in the Northeast was, has been documented since the, before the 1700s. Okay? Oh, wow. There's Native Americans. So, I mean, they're, they're holding, especially these cliff sites, they're holding them for a really long time. And, you know, as an individual gets old or gets killed, then another individual will move in. So it doesn't make sense to me that they went meet on, you know, as juveniles. That, that wouldn't make sense to me. What makes more sense to me is that somebody finds an open nest site on the breeding grounds and they meet up there. And it could be like with the, with the two from Kentucky, we don't, we don't really know if at one point in the past they migrated together, you know, because we did see last year the female, so that male has died, but the, the female didn't migrate past Duluth this year. And it could be just a weather thing, although they do have some learned responses. But she was hanging out with another male this year. We tried to catch him and we're not able to. But... Nonetheless, um, I don't like from what we know about golden eagle biology and don't think they would meet up on the wintering grounds, but there's no definitive evidence to say that they don't. But just based on how they find their territories, it makes sense that we meet on the breeding ground. Yeah, and I guess another option could be something like really cool, which would be that they migrate independently to a general area and they're moving around finding food and they see each other and actually recognize each mm-hmm. other. That, I mean, which, it's, it's pretty, that would be, you know, as a scientist, you're thinking, well, surely they can't do that, but obviously they probably do. <laughs> I, th- I mean, I, so, so I, that could, that could be, I mean, because we don't, we, we also don't, you know, the Eastern U S is, is big, but you know, the birds get funneled to certain areas. And so, you know, that, that's a possibility because we do see individuals that do not hang out with, you know, an, another, an, uh, you know, another of the opposite sex. So we see individuals that are just by themselves that, that don't appear to have a pair uh, around. And so it could be like this random chance thing. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's really fascinating and to think about, to, to try to figure out uh, what in the world's going on. And fortunately, that's a question that may remain forever because it would be just so hard to ever answer it. Yeah, the secrets of love in the, yeah. the golden, yeah. the golden eagle. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I got a question too about uh, some of the Canadian areas where you're seeing these birds go to... Um, are they in tundra, or are they, or are they in sort of boreal forest habitats, or does it span a whole range? Uh, yeah, of, so they, they yeah. go from from the far north all the way down into the mixed tempered forest. Of, okay. Yeah, so they they span that whole that whole the, all three of those biomes, right? Taiga, tundra, and boreal and, and mixed boreal. Yeah. Oh wow. Really yeah. versatile. I mean, I guess that's yeah. why they're so widespread. widespread. Yeah, worldwide. Right. And then, the, and then they, uh, you know, they they're not just cliff nesters. There's a lot that nest in trees. So all those birds that are up up in Manitoba on the west side of the Hudson Bay. I mean, there's not a heck of a lot of cliffs around there. Um, so some of those birds are are well, they're definitely using trees because we have. Um, We've actually been talking with people at Wapusk National Park, and they went out and and saw uh, this nest of this pair that I just told you the story about um, doing some surveys. And we actually would like to, they're going to try to install cameras um, on the nest uh, next year before they come in to breed so we can see what they're doing up there. And we might be able to identify that new male by his tail pattern. We'll see if we don't catch him this this coming winter. <laughs> yeah. So, 
I got a silly question. So that <laughs> I believe that. Yeah. yeah. I believe that story. Yeah. You know the the uh, uh legend of Tenochtitlan in Mexico where the if you look at the Mexican flag, right, it has a golden eagle and a snake yeah. and on a puntia cactus on a rock that's on on a in a lake. And the legend was basically that there's this kind of magical little island with a cactus and so forth and if the if the bird lands with a snake that's the place to make your big city your aztec empire and that's what Mex- mexico city is there right uh-huh. so but there's this argument a lot a lot of people say that probably the bird that they were thinking about wasn't a golden eagle because that doesn't sound like golden eagle behavior to be perching on a cactus with a snake it was probably a caracara and that's the, uh, the bird that should be on the flag of Mexico. <laughs> From your biological experience, would you be on Golden Eagle team for the flag or Caracara team for the flag? And of course, we're going to offend a lot of Mexican. Oh <laughs> boy, I don't know people. if I should, if I should <laughs> take, a, take just, a stand if, on that. I mean, just, you know, what do you think? Is that unusual behavior for a golden eagle to be sort of perching on a cat? Obviously, this is a legend, right? It's not like somebody was... Go with biologist Trish here. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, well, I'm fascinated by misidentification and, and identification of birds. And this could be the, the largest, most important misidentification of a bird. Ever, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, I mean, oh... I'm See, putting I you on I the spot, to... but but it's uh, a silly question. It's a silly question in that it really doesn't matter. You know, the 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 symbol of Mexico is the golden eagle, and it always will be. But I wonder if somehow along the line, and some historians have thought it's a caracara. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, are there? I mean, but a caracara doesn't even look anything like a golden eagle. Maybe a no, young but, one. I don't know. But you know, way way back, I mean, you got to think these people. Would, they didn't have binoculars, what have you. They didn't, you know, they, they were just looking there and they were just sort of saying a, probably a raptor, you know, it's probably the, uh, but it got you're, some. You're saying their ID skills were a little flimsy out? Boy, you're really casting. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And they, yeah. Are there other snake eaters in, uh, in, um, some small hawks, the desert out there. Yeah. Yeah. I get, yeah. Yeah. There would be, you know, um, but, but probably the main one you sort of see, with a snake, it's probably crested caracara. Um, yeah, but do do golden eagles eat snakes regularly? That you think or seen, or is it? Maybe that's the question to ask. And then then I'll make my decision. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I imagine they would eat snakes. I don't. I don't see them eating snakes out here because there are no snakes around at yeah. the time. But they, I mean, they primarily take take uh, birds and mammals. Yeah. But they are opportunistic, and I can see that they might. Uh, although I'm, I'm just looking at uh, the birds of the world, and there's nothing that says they take snakes. So if they take snakes, it's you know some probably a rare occurrence, yeah, and not something that would be seen enough, yeah, uh, out west, you know, right, or so, in Mexico that that <laughs> that it would deserve putting on the uh yeah exactly the flag. although although you know a, a golden eagle is just much more majestic than a caracara i don't want to offend I the caracara wow. Wow. Yeah, they're really I cool i mean yeah. caracaras are awesome <laughs> clever caracaras are smart I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah 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 but you know that that that's part of it too is because the golden eagle is so regal and everybody is uh you know agrees like wow Golden Eagle. They they are the symbol for so many nations all over the northern hemisphere. And it seems that given one to the Caracara would be okay. You know, like just one. Oh, you know, yeah. like just, just they deserve you one. know, just I don't know. Or or at least, you know, maybe there's a secondary flag that can be put up for somewhere with a little caracara on it. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's up to you to go you, to the Mexican government. It's a silly question. I that's what I do here. That's fun. <laughs> But you know, you learn a little bit about biology with it too, and history. I think you know it's uh, we'll we'll get letters, <laughs> yeah, pro, pro caracara or or anti caracara. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, guys, we are we're getting close to our time here, but a couple quick questions about golden eagles, Trish, um, and um, 
like I was reading about Marshall Eagles recently, and I think they have like I don't I didn't read the exact study, um, but I saw that they were said to have been able to detect prey from something like four miles away. Like I presume they saw like a antelope scamper in the distance, and one somebody was watching it, and they somehow you know calculated that distance people always ask about eagle eyes right and yeah. and what their vision's like maybe you could talk a little bit about, about that also uh longevity how long these things live or, or are known to live um and maybe what's typical versus the, some outliers um and then also just a little bit about like uh, ranges how much ground do these birds cover on their winter and breeding territories like how how much how big are those territories that's a lot of questions sorry it is a lot of questions <laughs> eyesight they can see really far <laughs> yeah, yeah it's hard to measure uh, yeah i mean uh, i mean they can be thousands of feet up and and be able to spot you know an animal on the ground uh how often they they need to do that is a different story, but they can certainly you know see from far enough away that that the animal doesn't see them. That probably makes them very successful hunters. Yeah. Um, what was the second question? <laughs> uh, the, well, the ranges of the, the ranges. Uh, their home range and also longevity. Their their longevity. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the range size they they. Range size really depends on prey availability and age. So, you know, on, on the breeding grounds, like some of these winter ranges, our breeding ranges are like 15 kilometers across. They're really, really tiny. Um, and others, if they're others, if they have lower availability of food, then they'll have a, a bigger um, range size. And if they're, successful breeders versus unsuccessful then they can often they'll breed you know they'll use a much larger area if they're not attached to a nest then they'll they'll go other places um around their territory to hunt and so so you know and if they're not breeding at all like they don't hold the territory then then you get birds that are roaming all over the place and that's what we see especially of of young birds subadults especially and those birds are wandering over you know hundreds if not thousands of square kilometers and they're probably looking for open open nest sites open territories or weekly held territories that they can come back to and and try to try to muscle their way into um so it's it's highly variable their winter ranges tend to be bigger than their smaller ranges I have a paper that tells you like what what the means and all that where I wasn't expecting it, so I didn't I don't have the information off the top of my head. Um, but that also varies. So some of these adults are holding pretty small winter territories, and um, juveniles and subadults much larger ones. What's interesting about about these uh, winter winter territories is that once an adult tends to, and I say territory, it's probably more of a home range. So territory is something they defend, a home range is something they use. And so in the winter, they're probably not defending um, a territory, rather they're using a, an area and they could be using that with other eagles. So adults tend to go <clears throat> to the same small winter range every year. A juvenile will come and they often will be go further south in the first year and they may go back there in the second year, but then in the, you know, sometimes the second or third winter, even the fourth winter, they tend to shift that winter range to further north. And, um, and that's, that's really neat to see. And, so, and, uh, you know, we don't know why they do it or what. And some birds, like we've had, we had a bird we caught in Georgia as a second winter, and he went to a different place every year after the third, after his 
third winter. So he went back to Georgia's third winter, but then he, he ended up wintering in Missouri. He wintered in uh, Tennessee, I believe, and then in Indiana um, before he died of lead poisoning in Southern Illinois mm. <laughs> last year. Um, but, they, but, but he's like probably out of the norm. Not most of these birds are end up going to the same place every summer. I guess part of the reason these things are so successful is that they are flexible and adaptable, you know, as a species. Um, is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. I think that, you know, they're extremely powerful. I mean, they have this global distribution or, you know, distribution across the Northern hemisphere. Um, and they've adapted to so many different, uh, environments. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're awesome. They can kill deer. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you have a bird that are. can kill a deer. It's <laughs> pretty wild. Yeah. And how old's the oldest individual do you, or that you, you might be aware of? Oh, so, I mean, I think they can live up to 30 years. You get a lot of, a lot of early. juvenile mortality, early yeah. mortality. And then these older birds in living uh, can live a very long time. No, that makes sense. I, I think you, you kind of, yeah, it reminds me of a lot of the birds, especially longer lived birds. If you can get past the first couple of years, then you can potentially go a really long time. You just need to pick the right spots to live and, and have a little bit of luck. Um, yeah, I think, I think probably, you know, they, you know, once they've, once they've figured out how to hunt and they get through that first year, then they're kind of safe until they start um, trying to settle in on breeding territory and tr- because then they end up in fights and, and uh, probably a lot of mortality on the breeding grounds is from fighting with other eagles. Mm-hmm. You definitely see that in bald eagles. Yes. So, I, I was shocked yeah. years ago. Um, yeah. Lisa Smith at Tri-State Bird Rescue told me something like they get like over 50 bald eagles a year at Tri-State Bird Rescue. And it's, basically all early in the breeding season, almost all from battling where they just plummet to the ground in, in battles. And then people find these birds injured and they end up, but like, that's, that's just in the sort of the Delaware Valley region. They get 50 right. some bald eagles a year. I mean, that's pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. They, they fight hard to keep those territories. And, yeah. And uh, they're precious, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Those are obvious concentration points like we were sort of talking about because they are right. hard to find good breeding sites. Uh, that's a limiting factor for sure. Um, well, we should uh, we should think about wrapping up here, guys. Trish, is there anything else you want folks to know about your work or other opportunities that uh, they might have to, to uh, learn about stuff? I, I did want to say I follow you guys on Instagram, Cellular Tracking Technologies, that's the handle. Um, some really cool posts there about ongoing work and some of the people um, that you work with. Um, anything else, folks, you want to know about your your work or what's coming up? Well, if you are interested in specific research that we do, you can look at go to consciglobal.org or just Google Conservation Science Global, and you can see some maps of the telemetry data we've collected and as well as a list of our publications. And if anybody's interested in reading more about Golden Eagle Home Range or other things like that, uh, you can certainly uh, send me an email and I'm happy to share any of the publications if you can't find them online. Um, I have, we have some exciting projects coming up. <clears throat> um, we, are, uh, we got more funding just the other day to study uh, do some more studies on golden eagles in the southeastern U.S. Uh, we found a lot of birds in the Ozarks. So if you live in the Ozarks, keep your eyes open in the wintertime for golden eagles because there are a heck of a lot more there than anybody recognizes. <laughs> I will be doing some more work down there this winter, and I'm hoping that we can get into Mississippi as well and do some tagging there, but we have to get, get a contact and get some permits and then we're also uh, going to be doing funding's not fully approved yet but we think we're going to get some money to do some studies in Maine and if you live in Maine 
keep your eyes out in the summertime, especially in the northern part of the state, and look for golden eagles that might be exploring iries over there. Because there's probably a dozen uh, historic iries um, that um, aren't yeah. occupied now, but they could be in the future. Ripe so. for re re nest new nest fresh nesting attempts. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Trish. Uh, we really appreciate you being here today. And uh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks fun. a lot. Thanks for contemplating my silly questions. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Great. Well, thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back again soon. Cheers, everybody. Take care. Bye. Bye.